Good morning. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn with me to the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. We're going to talk about prayer today. So we're in a sermon series where we're talking about discipleship. What we're really saying is that we want to follow Jesus. We don't want to just be religious people. We don't want to become judgmental, hypocrites. We don't want to just get caught in routines. We want to be the kind of followers that Jesus wanted. And so we're going to use nine ways to examine that. And today we're talking about prayer. So if we were going to just take a look at your prayer life today and ask you, I mean, how are you praying? Like if you were just to evaluate your walk with Jesus based on how you've approached God in prayer today, how, how would you be doing? Now I've learned over the last couple of years that for me personally, now this may not translate to everybody, but for me personally, my prayer life, of all the nine ways, my prayer life seems to be the one that I need to pay the most attention to. I can tell you that on any given week that as my prayer life goes, there is my intimacy with Jesus. If I find myself too busy and I'm not slowing down and spending time intimately with God in prayer, I can guarantee you that I'm probably not where I want to be with the Lord that week. Now, I don't know if you're the same way, but here's what I find. I find that loving people comes pretty naturally, pretty easily to me. I've found that God has taught me how to repent. Man, I have learned to obey him. Mike, I can remember so many times you talking in the office about obedience and obedience about obeying the Spirit. God has drilled that into my head. I want to obey Jesus well. But I can tell you that like, if I preach a good sermon, probably a couple of people are going to say, way to go, Ben. I appreciate you studying and thinking and communicating that. Or people say, hey, I love the way you love us. That comes pretty naturally to me. But in the distractions of my ADHD, in the pace of the life that I keep, what doesn't come naturally for me is the discipline of withdrawing and connecting with God. Not with some kind of prayer that's like a bullet point list in 30 seconds. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this. But like in a real intimate prayer where I spend time with God and connect with Him, where I can be changed in God's presence, that for me is where God's working. So out of all the nine ways, today's sermon is the one that I need to hear the most. What about you? How's your prayer life? Speaking of that, let's stop and pray. Father, I ask your grace on my sisters and my brothers and myself as we bend our knees and bow our heads and ask, Lord, that you would humble us and bless us. God, that we would feel the warmth of your love, the peace that passes understanding from your Holy Spirit, The Lord, in prayer, you would teach us and shape us and mold us. So God, today we come before you and we ask you for a lesson. And more than a lesson, Lord, we ask that you would change us from the inside out. Lord, that you would cause us to be people of prayer. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Step one as we get ready to dive off into this sermon. If you might have inherited bad habits in prayer, I'm going to ask you at the outset of the sermon, very first thing, would you be willing to change the way you pray? If you look up and you realize that you've inherited some bad habits, would you drop them? Would you forget them? Any golfers in the room? Raise your hand if you're a golfer. Who are are the golfers? I don't know if I should raise my hand or not. Tori, you should tell me if I should raise my hand or not. You've seen it out there. It's ugly. 
I'm definitely a hacker. When I was in high school, when I was in college, I was a golfer. I loved it. But as a 45-year-old dude that never takes the time to go play anymore, I'm scary on a golf course. Literally, I, I think, Joe, do you tell me if I'm wrong? I have hit you physically with a golf ball before. And he's hit me as well, just so you know the score is even. And McKenna hit me with a tennis ball. So y'all are one up right now. All right, all right. I'm not a great golfer. But, you know, here's the thing golf coaches say about golf swings sometimes. And I bet y'all have heard this. A new guy will come out to the golf course and say, man, you know, I've never really done this. I, I I don't know if you can teach me. I haven't been playing for all my life. And then a golf coach might say, actually, you're going to be easier to teach than a guy that's been playing for 10 years. Because the guy that's been playing for 10 years who has learned bad mechanics, but he's opening his hips or leaving his hands back, he has ingrained that into his muscle memory. It's going to be so hard for me to teach him. The first thing that guy's got to do is unlearn all the bad habits that create that huge slice But if you're coming to me empty-handed and saying, I have no idea what I'm doing here, I can work with that. Well, for some of us that have been praying for 40 years on prayer templates that we inherited that are not biblical and they're not going to change our life, the first thing we're going to have to do today is be willing to drop them and forget it and let Jesus teach us how to pray differently. Jesus told us in Matthew 6, That God is not impressed with big fancy words or the repetition of a whole lot of words. And yet, some of us, day after day, we approach God with these same phrases that just roll out of our mouth because a deacon taught them to us years ago. And we wonder, do we slow down and listen? Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer. And yet, often our prayers are 97.5% asking God, would you do this, fix this, make this happen, gimme, gimme, gimme. When the Lord's Prayer is actually a really well-balanced way to approach Jesus. What I'm saying is, when I've looked at my own prayer life, I've recognized that the first step for me was to stop just saying, oh, I'll pray better, and then I go back and do what I've always done. Turns out, I need to drop my old habits first and let Jesus teach me how to pray. And that has made a really big difference for me. So in an effort in that direction, two parables and one passage on prayer today. Look with me in Luke 18. The first parable is about prayer and faith. I'm going to ask you before I read it. Have you ever prayed to God for things, but you didn't hear his voice and you didn't see anything happen? Like maybe for the first day, second day, first week, second week, six months, two years, and you keep praying, but something hasn't changed. And so you're looking up at God and you're starting to get really frustrated because it's causing you to question whether God hears your prayer Or whether God cares about your prayer. Because when you're sitting there praying and he's not answering, you really start to get worried. I do. Have you ever been in that spot? Raise your hand if you've ever been frustrated over unanswered prayers. That's right. Garth Brooks says, I thank God for it. I'm just kidding. We're not bringing Garth Brooks in this sermon. But uh, maybe he's right. I don't know. I think he probably was. But if you've ever been there, so were people 2,000 years ago. And Jesus knew that. So he, he taught us a parable about that. Let's see what Jesus said. Chapter 18 of Luke. So then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Have you ever wanted to give up praying? A bunch of you have. I have. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town 
who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. So you can assume okay, that this is what's happening. There's one judge in the town, an elder who makes decisions for the people. There's a widow who has no strength, no social clout. Nobody's listened to her. If she was in high school, she's not cool. She's not the in crowd. In the grown-up world, she doesn't have money. She doesn't have resources. She doesn't have a reputation. She doesn't have a husband who's a lawyer or a deacon at the church. There's nobody standing up for this woman, and yet she has been treated unjustly. She has an adversary that's coming at her and there's one power in the whole town that can stand up for her and make it right and it's this judge. So flip that script, right? You and I are wrestling some big things in in our lives and there's one person that can make them right. God, right? How many Ukrainian Christians right now are praying? Because here come Russian tanks and Russian planes and Russian troops. And every one of us who's watching this unfold from home, watching our television screens, we see clearly there's nothing this tiny country is going to do to win against that big country. And nobody's stepping in to fix it. And people are going to be praying. We're going to be praying. I hope you are praying. They're going to be praying. What do you do when you're looking up at God saying, you're the only one big enough to fix this? And then the tanks keep coming and the soldiers keep moving or your marriage continues to stumble or your son continues to use or nothing seems to change at work. Have you ever looked up at God and said, you're the only one big enough to fix it and I'm asking you, please fix it. What do you do when you don't see the result? That's where this widow was. Look at verse 4. For some time he refused But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think. This is a terrible judge, right? I don't fear God. I don't care about people. This is not a good judge. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Like he doesn't want this lady to run up to him on Main Street with her purse and like get them on the Jerry Springer show or something, right? She doesn't, he, he doesn't want to make the news. So he said, all right, this woman is wearing me out. Now, what does that mean, Ben? Does that mean that we should wear God out with prayer? Is God ever going to look up and go, oh, fine, fine, you're trying my patience. All right, newsflash, okay? I learned this in seminary. This is, this is theology 101. If God is eternal and eternally patient, you can't wear him out. You're not going to bother him or get him to answer your prayer because you bugged him. Now, your kids might, right? Your kids are going to run around pulling, please, 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 please. The 852nd time they've said, can I get get this, you're finally in a moment of weakness, going to cave in and say, sure. And they've learned that. So they use that against us. I've seen it. But it doesn't work with God. That's not the point of the parable. Jesus is going to tell you the point of the parable in one second. Happy birthday, Mark. Good to see you. Jesus is going to tell us the point of the parable in just a second. Look in verse 6. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Now keep in mind, the way these prayers are going to be answered for God's chosen ones who are praying might blow your mind. One of the answers, if you just flip a couple of pages in your Bible, just a few pages from here, God's son is going to be broken on a cross to redeem humanity. And that is an answer to God's people crying out. 
People might not see how God is moving in the moment to answer your prayers or your deeper needs. We don't see the whole picture. We don't see why God says no or wait sometimes. And you know, as well as I do, that a lot of our prayers are going to be answered. They're just going to be answered in the age to come. Like some of our prayers for healing happen when we open our eyes in the presence of King Jesus. And some of them happen here. But all of your prayers are heard. And Jesus says, watch from this parable. Look, look with me in verse 8. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This unjust judge is going to quickly give justice to this woman in her village. And Jesus says, gang, we all know people like that unjust judge, right? Who are not terrific people, maybe not good judges, don't fear God, don't love people. But eventually, eventually they'll stand up for what's right just maybe because they were pestered or whatever. Well, Jesus, I think, is looking at the church. And then he says what, right? But will God find the faith, such faith with his children? Here's the question I think that Jesus is asking. What do you think about God's character? Do you think of him like that judge? Like you're annoying him with your prayers and you're bothering him? Do you feel like he needs you to twist his arm? Do you feel like he's forgotten you? Because that's the point of this. This parable makes perfect sense when you read that last line. What Jesus is wanting people to do is hold on to faith even when they don't hear God or see him move. That's all Jesus wants you to know. Look at, the last, look at the last statement. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When Jesus comes back in that last generation, will believers still be holding to faith? Are you still walking in faith? Have you let go of it? Like that invisible trust between you and God. So that when, when you don't see God moving, what do you think? Do you say to yourself, well, fine, there's no man upstairs and he doesn't care. If he cared, he'd have fixed my husband. Or there's nobody listening to my prayers. If he cared, he'd have healed my wife. When God doesn't answer, what do you think? Do you let go of your faith and give it up? Because Jesus knew that you would be tempted to do that. That's why you have this parable. Because 2,000 years ago, when God's people were crying out to God and not seeing the answers, Jesus knew that they wondered if God was listening. And so he came and told us that God was. And he even let us know that some of these prayers will be answered when the Son of Man comes back. And so what I'm asking is in the meantime, have you abandoned your faith because you didn't see God move? You will be tempted to do that. But you know, that really comes down to what you think about God's character, doesn't it? Like if, if you think God is an angry judge sitting in the cosmos trying to decide if you're good enough or not good enough, well, then when God does not answer one of your prayers, you're going to assume it's because you weren't good enough. And you're going to go, oh, okay, God didn't answer my prayer because I'm still sinful or because I wasn't good enough for him. I'll go be better and then I'll pray. And he'll, you'll do that for a year or two or five or ten until finally you get so mad at God you give up. But that wasn't who God was. That's just who you tried to make him to be, right? If you think of God as a genie in the bottle whose purpose is to give us everything we ask for, well, then you're going you're gonna to say, all right, God, give me something. And when he doesn't, you're going to think, oh, there's no genie because you forced that on God. That's not who God is, so you made him to be. 
But what if we thought of him as Jesus taught us to? That he is a father who loves us. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells people, listen, what dad in this church, if his son came and said, dad, I'm hungry, I'm really hungry, can I have a fish? What dad would trick him and give him a snake to punish him? What sadistic, sick father would trick their kid that way? And Jesus looked at these people and said, but guys, if if fathers down here, even though we're kind of sinful and broken, know how to give our children good gifts, how much more will our heavenly father give us the Holy Spirit? In other words, God's not a tricky, sadistic, mean dad. He's not trying to trick you, trap you, catch you, stumble, make you stumble. Do you believe that his character is good, that he loves you and he wants to give you good stuff? That's how Jesus taught us to understand him. When you believe that, you can pray to him a little differently. So the first parable, Jesus is teaching his people that if you think of God not as that unjust judge, but as a good father, you'll know that even when he's quiet, he loves you. That even when he's not answering, he's working for you. Don't drop your faith. Second parable is kind of like, okay, what kind of prayer does God want? Two guys are going to go to church. One of them is going to get heard. One of them is not. Now, you might be surprised. The guy that actually does not get his prayer answered in this parable is the guy who was like the deacon, the Sunday school teacher, the Baptist preacher. He's the guy with perfect attendance. The guy who gets his prayer answered at church this day, who has a legitimate, heart-changing experience with God, is the guy who hasn't been to church in a while, who everybody in town thinks is on the right track. Turns out he just got back on the right one. Let's read this parable. Uh, Verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness, so you already know what the parable is going to be about. It's about self-righteous people. And looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. Hey, in 2022, you and I have been in church all our life, right? So, some of us. So, as we hear this parable, when I say Pharisee, we all say, ooh, the bad guy, right? But you know, in the first century, this sounded a lot like the Baptist minister. Like, in the first century, the, the Pharisee wasn't the bad guy. He was the religious dude that was reading his Bible and obeying the law, opposing the Messiah, but reading his Bible, obeying the law. So everybody hearing this parable expects the Pharisee to pray a beautiful prayer that God's real proud of. Everybody hearing this parable for the first time goes, I know whose prayer is going to be heard. That sinner, he hadn't earned it. That Pharisee, y'all watch, y'all watch. Take a lesson. This Pharisee is going to teach you to pray. Everybody tune in. Listen, write this down. Say what he says. It's the opposite. Look, look at what the Bible says. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Verse 11, so the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Come on. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Y'all, this is, blows my mind, okay? Or even like this tax collector here. <laughs> I'm like, wait, you let him say that in church? Where's the deacon? Somebody should tell, tell this guy to leave, right? So this guy is praying what everybody's thinking. God, I thank you that I'm so good, so blessed. Grew up the son of a rabbi. Went to church as a kid. I'm so thankful that you've made me so good and so righteous. And I'm not like all those other fools out there. Isn't it funny how we measure everybody by ourselves and our opinion of ourselves is a little inflated? 
But it blows my mind that this guy can look at the other person praying and say, and not even like that tax collector. And he tells you why. Look at verse 12. Because I'm good. I'm a good, obedient, religious dude. I do stuff. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. Raise your hand if you fast twice a week. All right, so this guy, this guy's better than we are. All right. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. I've never missed a tithe. Okay? So the guy's very religious. Verse 13. Here's your other dude. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. And he beat his chest. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's true that the guy can learn to pray some more beautiful prayers. The guy can learn to pray a lot of other stuff. But this is a pretty good starting point. Like in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in heart. There's the kingdom of heaven. Like if you come to God knowing that you need his love and mercy, that's a pretty good starting point. If you come to God thinking you don't need any help from him, why are you there? You ever, have you ever had a conversation where you were so busy making sure everybody knew what all you knew about the topic that you didn't take time to learn from the other people and hear what they knew about the topic? I've done that. You know, when we go to prayer and we're so busy telling God all our thoughts and needs and ideas about how he should operate the world today, it's remarkable to me that we don't ever stop and say, God, what do you think about this and what do you want me to do about this? We bring God our opinions when we're like that Pharisee. I'm so good. I'm so good. Look at verse 14 though, okay? Jesus said, I'll tell you that this man, that is, you know, the tax collector, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. So guys, in other words, like one guy had his prayers heard that day. One man went home from church that day. With that peace that passes understanding. Have you ever felt, you ever come to church one Sunday and you just felt God moving your life in a powerful way? One guy had that, one guy didn't. The guy that went home right with God was the tax collector that said, God, I need you. So, what does this teach us about prayer, Ben? A couple things. Number one, look, your attitude about God affects your prayers that's that's kind of a given it's not really addressing the parable I'm kind of borrowing that from the first parable but if you believe Jesus is, that God is listening to you as a father who loves you okay great you're you're off to a great start but the second thing and you may want to write this down this is this is actually getting to the heart of this parable your attitude about yourself affects your prayers your attitude about yourself Affects your prayer. In this prayer, the guy's like, I'm so good. God, I'm so glad that I'm so good. Born in, the, born in America, God, I follow your laws. I do right. I am right. God, I'm so glad I'm good. This guy was so self-absorbed. He had not taken up his cross to die to himself. He was so prideful, so self-centered, so self-righteous. that God wouldn't and couldn't work in the man's life. He had no space for it. Listen, the Bible tells us right here. That those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you need God to bring you down a notch? Like, and when you go to prayer, are you speaking to God? You're not asking him anything because you don't want his opinion. You need to tell him what to do. 
I tell people this is remarkable, but my prayer life at some seasons, it looked more like I was showing up to God, and I'm a pretty ignorant fellow. I mean, I have a first-class education from scuba tech, but I can still be a little bit ignorant sometimes. And it's almost like I'm meeting with the God of the cosmos in the morning to say, I don't know what you've got on your list today, but God, I'm going to tell you a few things you need to do. Thank you for this little check-in. I need you to give Uncle Bird a job. I need you to make my wife stop back-talking. I need you to help my kids behave. I need you to make this man well. I'm not ready for that lady to die. Lord, heal her, make her well, bring her back. And God, let our church experience revival. Trust me, we're ready for it. And I walk out, have a nice day, God. Go ahead, uh, if you don't mind, before lunch, huh? Could you, I mean, I know you got a lot of other people talk, but before lunch, sooner the better. That's what I'm saying. It's like I'm giving God, in my prayers, I'm giving God his task list for what I think he should do today. That's really different than me coming to him as a child saying, Dad, I need help and I don't know what to do. Will you help me? God, I'm scared. Can you show me the way forward? What do you want me to do? What do I tell Uncle Bert, God? What do we need to do to be ready for revival, God? What do you want me to do about this choice? God, will you heal her, please? It's really different than when I look up at my Heavenly Father and say, do you have a list for me? Here's my list of what I'm worried about, scared about, need to decide about. This is the world as I see it. God, here's my list. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. God, help me love my wife. Show me what I don't see. Your attitude about yourself affects your prayers. Because if you walk into that prayer closet thinking that you're in charge and you know it all and you've got the answers... You're not going to hear very much from God. Your attitude about yourself determines a lot about the effectiveness of your prayers. But I'm going to tell you this. If you feel humble or like you're not sure you can cut it, oh, you're in a great spot. If you're grateful, a oh, perfect place to be. Curious, eager for God's wisdom, hungry, thirsty for righteousness, oh, pure in heart, you're in a great spot for your prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Another thing this parable teaches me is that your attitude, this will blow your mind a little bit, your attitude about other people affects your prayers. This guy sitting here, he's praying a prayer that we're all dropping our jaw when he goes, God, I'm so glad I'm not like that sinner over there. That man's heart was so hard. Listen, the two fundamental commands of the Bible are love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If John tells us in his letters, if you can't love a man who you've seen on the earth, you're just lying to yourself if you think you can love God who you've never seen. This man didn't love God. He didn't love anybody God made. He might have been very religious. He probably appreciated his status, but he didn't love God. What you think about other people, your attitude towards other people will determine your prayers. It'll affect them. Because number one, if you can't love people horizontally, I'm going to challenge the fact that I'm not sure that you're loving God vertically as well as you think you are. Because I have a hunch that when you love God as well as you think you should and receive the mercy he gives, it's much easier to be transformed by that grace and give it out. But when you're standing here where this guy was, it's a pretty good sign that your heart is still hard. You needed God to work. Another thing, you know, if you... If you have this attitude about other people, it will handicap your prayers for intercession. That's a fancy Bible word for when you're praying for somebody else. And I, just, I know that I'm getting a little long, but I need to say this part. Listen, if you're praying for your spouse, or you're praying for a friend, or praying for an old pastor, or praying for somebody at work, or you're at school and you've been hurt and you're trying to pray for your bully, 
If you're praying for somebody else, if your attitude towards them is that you're right and they're wrong and God needs to fix them this afternoon, your prayers are going to be so shallow. But if you'll go to God and ask him to teach you to love that person, then you'll start praying for them differently. And watch this boomerang effect. It's hard to be mad at somebody that you're praying well for. And that will fix a lot of our marriages. For kids who are angry at their parents right now, that'll heal a lot of that frustration when you start praying for your mom and dad. What if your mechanism was just to go straight to your prayer closet instead of going to spin this story out of control in your mind and being mad at somebody? What if we went to our prayer closet instead? Your attitude about other people is going to affect your prayers. You'll start praying the kind of prayers Jesus wants to hear. You'll start praying the will of God. You'll start praying in Jesus' name instead of in your own name. So let's wrap it up, you think? There's one story that follows these two parables on prayer. And I, and I think this story, because of where it is in the structure of the Bible text, I think we can use it to sort of go the last step on our prayer life, if you will. Verse 15, so people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked him because they're grown up and important. They probably weren't listening to the last parable very well. But Jesus called the children to them, to him, and he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. You know, Jesus is the one that was teaching us to pray to God as a father. Just a few chapters ago in Luke's gospel, he's the one that taught you to come to God like a heavenly father who would give you the Holy Spirit, his personal presence, who wanted to be with you. He's just told us that God's not like an unjust judge. Even if you don't see him moving as fast as you want, don't give up your faith because I promise he loves you. There may be reasons that you don't see the answer to your prayer, reasons you can't understand, but don't doubt his character or his love for you because Jesus came to tell us that he loved you. He told us about two guys praying, one guy so arrogant and proud, one guy coming to God in humility. And I can't help but think this story is in the right spot for the right reason. That maybe Jesus wants to remind us that our prayers should look an awful lot like a child speaking to their father. I brought this out of my office. You're not going to be able to see it from the back row. You got the best seats in the house, but you can't see my picture. This is my three kids when they were little. I'll, I'll put it up here for you to come take a closer look if you'd like. I'm sure my boys will love that. This is when they were adorable. And I keep it in there sometimes just to remember this, right? But now they're all baptized, so if we kill one of them, they'll be with the Lord. We'll be fine. <laughs> well, when Jesus tells us, let kids come to him, I kind of think he's also telling us, don't forget that you've got to come to me the same way, right? Kids don't think they know it all. Kids, babies, little children think their moms and dads are great. 
they know that their moms and dads are running the house and it's better that way and they're happy to ask them what to do next. And sometimes they just want to sit in your lap and be held. And sometimes they just want to tell you what they're scared of or what's going on. I don't know, I kind of think that if you're trying to relearn how to pray so that you'll spend the rest of your life praying prayers that Jesus is pleased with, maybe your first step in the right direction is to remember how to come to God with faith like a child. To know that he loves you very much. Even if you don't see him working, you can trust that he's on your side. To pray to him, not like some arrogant grown-up proud of what he's done, but like a sinner that needs mercy from a father that loves him. I don't know. Two parables and one principle, right? So how's your prayer life? Like when nobody else is watching and you're just alone with God and you're speaking to him, how's your discipleship coming? I want to invite our praise team to join me on the platform, and I want to invite our whole church to pray prayers that Jesus will hear. I want to ask you today, would you make a turn? Like for some of you, your first prayer you need to pray today is for salvation. You're lost. And like Cannon prayed on Wednesday night, like Shep prayed with his family. You need to pray and ask Jesus for salvation and be born again and let God become your father. But for some of us, we've been walking with the Lord a long time, but we needed this sermon as a reminder. And so I'm going to ask you today, would you commit to freshen up your prayer life? For some of you, that may mean starting your prayer life. Maybe you've been on autopilot so bad that you just say the same stuff every day, but you're ready for that to change. You want to engage God and just be in his lap and be attentive to him. You want to speak to the God of the cosmos and let him tell you what to do. So maybe today is the day that you make that choice. I want to encourage you. Would you? In the pew rack right in front of you, there's red cards like this. You know the altars are open for prayer. I'm standing down here if you want to give your life to Jesus. But for every person here in the pew rack right in front of you are these cards with prayer requests on the back. And today I just want to encourage you. Yeah, Maybe you need to use them to tell us it's time for your baptism or you've asked Jesus to be your Lord or you're committing your life to ministry. But maybe some of you want to use them because God's telling you to rededicate your prayer life. And you just want to drop a red card in the drop box that says, Today I'm starting over. I commit to pray. Look at Sly, 42 days till Easter. 43. What if you just said, look, for Lent, I'm going to meet with Jesus every day and I'm going to pray to him prayers that he's proud of. If you're ready to make that decision, why don't you use your red card and tell us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach me to pray. That your Holy Spirit, Lord, would change us when we sit with you alone. That we would find peace and be reminded of the, that you are so much bigger, Lord, than the anxiety that we feel, the stress that we feel. Teach us to pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond to the Lord.